Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you're having an absolutely fantastic day. Me, I've been working on the new website for our studio, Garden of Yoga, and boy, have I signed up for a big job. As you may know, my day job is as a web developer, but the current website for Garden of Yoga, it's getting a little bit long in the tooth, you might say, so it's time for an update. Now, I do think there's a general aesthetic with yoga websites, you know, clean white background, nice image at the top of the homepage, you know, a bit of a generic look, and we really want to do something that's dynamic and colourful and that suits Joe and my personality, so that's what I'm trying to do. I've got a great designer friend, Kelly, who's made some amazing designs for the website, and I'm spending a lot of time just making sure that it all looks just right. So anyway, I was wondering, what do you think is important in a yoga website, especially in terms of look and feel? I'd really like to hear from you, get your opinion. So why don't you join our Facebook group, the Flow Artist Podcast Community, and let us know. Become a Flow Artist. Alright, enough of me talking about websites, let's get on with our episode. This episode is a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart, and Coco Nkrumah. Coco is a meditation teacher, podcaster, and the man behind reality-based mindfulness. Coco is of West African descent and is passionate about creating accessible spaces for people of colour to explore mindfulness and meditation. Joe and I really believe that practices such as yoga and meditation should be both welcoming and accessible to everyone, so we were really excited to talk to Coco and get his perspective. So without further ado, let's get to know Coco. (laughs) Yeah, we are live. All right, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Coco. Thank you for having me, guys. Really excited to be here. Oh, yay. So perhaps you could start just by uh, giving us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, so I grew up Melbourne, sort of born and bred. My father's from um, West Africa, my mum's Australian. So um, I've grown up around the northern suburbs and in and out through the city, out of the city, most of my childhood and, and late teens. Attended school around Swinburne and, and around Sydney Road, so sort of brought up around this area. And yeah. how did you get into meditation? My journey began in my mid-teens through practicing martial arts. So I got introduced to Wing Chun Kung Fu and also Qigong. I remember one evening, this is probably when I was in high school, I saw a documentary on the Shaolin monks and I was just fascinated with all the things that they could do. And I eventually found a school that taught some of these practices. So not only the martial arts, but also the internal energy cultivation, Qigong. And I trained pretty diligently over the next six years in that system and trained with um, a few different Qigong masters. And that exposed me to sitting Taoist and Buddhist meditation also. And so did yeah. it always come naturally from the beginning, your connection with the meditation? Or did you kind of need that intense physical practice to like get you to the state where you were ready to be still? I initially, my first interest was Qigong and meditation, moving meditation. But still being a bit young and going out and getting drunk and things like that, my Sifu, uh, Sifu is the Chinese equivalent to a sensei, so my, my Sifu kicked me out of the class. Oh. And he said, you need to get your stuff together if you want to practice this. And he said, if you, if you want to continue practicing, because at that stage I was getting into what they call hard qigong, which is sort of when you see the monks belt things over their heads and things like that and that, that sort of stuff. So he said, if you want to come back into this, this class, you need to start training first and the martial arts aspect. 
and then we'll see how we go from there. So that's what I did. And then I was allowed back into the class. So essentially it was, it was the inner work that really drew me towards it. Yeah. yeah Cause my next question was, do you think like we've spoken to some people, we just feel like they've got this kind of naturally quite disciplined nature and they're drawn to that structure. So it's interesting that you yeah. shared that story about like, it was a bit of a turning point for you or am I going to focus on partying or am I going to yeah. focus on training? It was really, yeah, at that point, it was a bit of a struggle at the start, but when I was moving into my early 20s, that discipline and that structure really helped me in that part of my life. And yeah, I think it, it set up a lot of habits moving forward with my, my personal practice of, of meditation um, and also just things like working out and developing a work ethic. I think those things sort of came later It filtered into my life a bit later, the things that I learned when I was training quite heavily. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like things that you practice as part of your training just go on to be good life skills. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How did these early experiences, especially in the martial arts and the Qigong, how do they affect how you teach meditation now? I had a bit of a journey before coming to be teaching mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. So as I said, I was training quite substantially over six years, probably more than six years, close to seven years. And the more I trained uh, the martial arts and did the, the meditation, the Taoist Buddhist meditation, the Qigong, the more I got fascinated with the philosophical basis of what I was doing, um, which led me to a lot of self-study and seeking out other teachers in Taoist traditions and also doing self-study in Buddhism. And I came to a turning point at probably in my mid to late 20s where I was actually training with a master in Sydney, um, a Taoist master, and I felt that I'd come to um, what I was looking for and what I was studying wasn't being reflected in what I was learning with this sort of internal training. So I had a bit of a hiatus with my spiritual practice and also the energy cultivation and martial arts. And I sort of just took some time to be by myself and just get on with my life type of thing. And I sort of came around full circle after going through a pretty hectic bout with a substance abuse, I had a pretty hectic drinking problem for, for quite a while. So I, I came 360 around and I discovered the power of now, the book by Eckhart Tolle. And when I read that book, everything that I was deeply interested in cultivating with like contemplative Taoism and Buddhism was really reflected in a very accessible way in that book. And it's just sort of like, oh, that's what I was trying to do. That's what I was trying to reach when we're talking about attaining Tao or, or being with Zen mind or, or seeing through the different illusions. So I think there was a bit of a, a contrast or maybe a dichotomy between the, the energy cultivation and the more contemplative basis of some of these traditions. So Moving forward, I um, continued to study a bit more and I found that mindfulness meditation was a beautiful, very simplistic way of conveying some of these deeper truths that I, that I think have a lot of unity in different spiritual traditions. And I think mindfulness is a great expression of that. Yeah. So that's sort of why I went move forward teaching mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. And just to detour back a little bit, if people haven't done any of the Taoist practices, could you give us a little bit of an explanation about what that style entails? Yeah, well, there's a whole range of different practices. So first of all, Taoism is a philosophy of not only the universe, but how we fit into the universe. And if anyone's wondering what Taoism is, the, the yin and yang is an amalgam of what Taoism is. So that, that's, a, that's a philosophy um, within Taoism. But a lot of the Taoist practices are essentially encouraging people to get in tune with nature. And when I say nature, the Chinese refer to nature a little bit differently than a Westerner would. A Westerner would see nature as trees, outdoors, outside. But when Taoists talk about nature, they're talking about the unifying element in the universe, the, the natural unifying element, which I call Tao. So a lot of the practices are helping to encourage this state through practicing energy cultivation through the body. 
and a lot of the practices really gear towards developing consciousness through clearing blockages and taking in energy. One of the hallmarks of Taoism is there's no there's a really there's a real big respect to health and sex and like the physical body. There's a there's a real acknowledgement of that. Maybe in some tantric traditions it may be the same, but they hold that in high regard, almost hand in hand with sort of the mental and emotional cultivation. So the Taoist practice is essentially a yeah a working towards longevity and developing insight through harnessing energy um, within the body and through the atmosphere too. And so are they often movement-based or still practices? Yeah, a lot of them are movement-based. There's thousands of types of different practices, whether it's Tai Chi, Qigong, Neigong, Daoyin, it, it's just the list goes on. But a lot of them are movement-based, but there, there are definitely seated Taoist meditations. You definitely find the older styles like pre-Han Dynasty are very much more slower movement-based, but there's definitely sitting meditation in the Taoist um, tradition, yeah. So it seems like now, just looking at everything that you do on your website and in your social media, like, you're so much about bringing these practices into everyday life, Mm. and I guess mindfulness is a great way in, because... It's quite secular and quite yeah. accessible. Yeah. Um, would you like to share some of the different meditation things that you do? Yeah. First of all, with I'll bridge the gap between where I was coming yeah, from and, yeah, and what yeah. I was attempting, just to put it into context yeah, of what we yeah. teach. So, look, I think that mindfulness was a great way. Like after having done a lot of these practices, I really looked at this the secular style of acceptance and commitment therapy, MBSR. Um, integrated mindfulness cognitive behavioral therapy and I found that a lot of the core principles of some of these eastern traditions are really at the base of a lot of mindful therapy keeping in mind that it's for a secular and psychological context or framework so having done some more study in, in mindfulness I just felt that it really articulated those contemplative experiences such as you know that you find in Zen Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism in a really um, accessible way So moving to like the practices that I would sort of teach people, just the basic stuff, just like open awareness, breath, feeling the body, sounds. They're offered in so many different programs and things like that that people probably bored to death with them. But it's a lot of the time, the simpler the practice, the more challenging it can be because there's more of yourself that you have to deal with and process. So what I teach is very sort of simplistic mindfulness practices and it's interesting that thing like oh people probably find it boring it's like if you find that boring you find yourself boring yeah because you're observing yourself in these practices exactly yeah yeah i love the name of your business as well which is reality-based mindfulness mindfulness for the real world yeah yeah and look in my own practice it's always about how how do i do this how do i really approach this you know how do i bring this into my life and when i do you know one-on-ones with people it's really about because it's very easy to run through a meditation with someone, I, I feel, and, and tell them to focus on the breath and a non-judgmental attitude and things like that. But it's like I really enjoy having a dialogue with people and seeing, you know, what's showing up in their life. Why isn't this meditation working? Why are you not feeling stressed? Why are you still feeling stressed when you're practicing? And I'm, I'm really big on honing into intention with the practice because I think intention has a huge role to play with just the quality of how we're doing what we're doing because it's quite quite easy to... I feel, in my experience, it's very easy to teach someone how to meditate, but it's difficult to teach them how to meditate, meaning that, you know, it's, it's quite easy to tell someone, yeah, go to the breath and this and that, and there you go, but 
all that whole that whole experience of trying to do that and the frustration and and the the boredom and things that arise but I really like to get into the nuts and bolts when I'm talking to people about that and it's like that's what you can get in a one-on-one session that you can't get from an app or from a practice yeah. that mm. someone's recorded for you yeah. like I think it's awesome to have both to yeah. have like your own practice but then to have someone you can go to and all of these questions come up yeah I think often the things that come up for us individually we kind of don't realize it's the human condition yeah everyone struggles with being distracted or yeah. you know with feeling sleepy or yeah. yeah it's really handy to have someone that you can take those questions to and kind of unpack all of that yeah uh, that's really really important because you know as soon as you sort of like for instance when I'm talking about feeling things in the body and I talk about bring your attention to you know some part of your body but if if, the, if you can't feel anything in say your the inner thighs or the backs of your legs you can't that's all right too it just that's the reality for this moment and as soon as someone does that they go oh I got irritated I couldn't I couldn't do the practice properly because I couldn't feel things and it's like you, being able to talk with someone about why that's happening, why that frustration is coming up is really important. And that's how you grow as a teacher. Because yeah. you realise, oh, every time I phrase it like that, it doesn't work for people. But if yeah. I just change my wording around that, then that stumbling block goes away for some people. Yeah, yeah. And with with some people, just like I find with myself, it's sometimes it's hearing the right the right thing at the right time from the right person that can frame it in a different way that just that just hits and resonates. So mm-hmm. yeah. Sort of interesting. We've sort of talked about this in other podcasts, but you can be actually saying the same thing to someone for many classes, but they might not hear that thing yeah. until... Then they'll be going, oh, that thing you said tonight was so powerful. It's like, I say that thing every week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You do have some really interesting sounding techniques on your website, which I'd love to ask you yeah. about. Yeah. And the first one is conversational mindfulness. Yeah. So when we're talking about, and that's something that I, um, I'm finding is really getting used more in workplace settings. I do um, corporate work and workplace stuff. But essentially, when we talk about conversational mindfulness, a lot of that is geared towards effective communication. So being able to communicate clearly and get your needs heard and, and voice how you're feeling and also listen to someone is something that takes a lot of awareness of how you're feeling, what's going on internally, and being able to express yourself. And being able to express yourself means sometimes in some settings, being willing to be vulnerable. When we're talking about, you know, it's not just, you know, having a chat over coffee sort of mindfulness stuff. It's we're talking about when difficult conversations, conflict resolution. So it's really working with emotions in the moment with people about how to express yourself, how to get overwhelmed or get too reactive when things come up and just react from obviously the perception, but also the, the uncomfortable feelings that are arising. So when I'm working with people with conversational mindfulness, it's almost like a guided conversation meditation type thing with little check-ins and a bit of space there while, while we're talking so it's really about being able to express yourself and being able to embrace vulnerability when there's difficult conversations to have so I find that usually that conversational mindfulness falls into a module of effective communication when I'm sort of doing workshops and things like that so yeah and that's such yeah. a great example of a mindfulness practice directly relating to everyday life yeah. like how do I choose my words carefully or even just be aware of my own reactivity or yeah. how stress is affecting what I'm saying. Yeah, and like the other thing that we were talking about, effective communication or conversational mindfulness, impulse control is a big one that comes up. The, the ability to 
manage your impulses with different people. So sometimes I'm in a workshop and I say, if your brother or your family member calls you up and you have a chat about something and something rubs you up the wrong way, usually you'll just blurt something out of your mouth, you know. But if it's a work colleague, you may look, if you're a boss or a manager, maybe a bit different. And there's social reasons for that, obviously. But when we can learn to gauge how reactive we are in different situations, we can learn to work on that reactiveness by being able to sit with those impulses and those feelings, particularly with like personal and intimate relationships where the communication it breaks down a bit, it's going back and forth. So yeah, I find there's a lot of ways to apply mindfulness. Yeah. And then that kind of leads to the next thing that you've listed, which is mindfulness and assertiveness, which yeah. I think is a really cool title for something because I think often people have this perception that if you meditate, you're just going to be super chill and nothing's yeah. ever going to bother you and yeah. you're just going to be this really passive person. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of the old, and a lot of the things of the old model of assertiveness is like a lot of, you know, just sort of pushing and maybe a mild aggression with, with things, which I think is a bit of an old paradigm. But again, that, that comes back to that sense of vulnerability, you know, being able to express yourself clearly and owning what you're wanting to say, but also not just sort of not acknowledging where other people are coming from. So assertive, assertive communication, effective communication is pretty much similar work there, but I guess with a different temperament maybe. Yeah. Mm, and I guess it's like, it's finding that balance. Like if you are that naturally more timid person, it might really serve you to kind of yeah. be able to say those things that are on your mind yeah. rather than kind of keeping it inside. Yeah. Whereas if you're that more fiery person, you will probably learn to kind of just think about those things before they come out your mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's a, that's a great example too. And like a lot of the times when you're working with things, especially with those social type settings, a lot of people with anything, I think a lot of us want to be super good at something or not at all. We, won't, we can't do it because we didn't 100% That's not for it. me. Yeah, you know, and even working with people who have a bit of social anxiety, just getting people to reduce and manage just feelings, even if they're not needing to give a presentation or they're not needing to have a really uncomfortable conversation, even just getting them to just reduce a bit of stress just being in, in different settings is helpful too it yeah. seems like all of this stuff as well would be super helpful for young people and teenagers like yeah. i noticed that you do do a lot of work um with younger people i'm a live-in volunteer so live-in mentor for a, an at-risk youth program i work and sort of live in that space but i yeah i recently or earlier this year i staffed um one of the first teen retreats in australia or it's in tassie so ime they're doing really good stuff i think it was their third retreat but it was really good to see how the teens responded, like super articulate. After each sit, we had time to debrief from the sits with the young people and they were really in tune with their experience and some of the things you'd hear them talking about and reflecting on was like, man, wise beyond their years. So I think it was really beneficial, yeah. Yeah, mm. so like it's awesome that you do the live-in volunteer role yeah. as well. Like, yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I work with an organisation called Concern Australia and they house youth who may have just gotten out of remand or they can't stay at home for whatever reason. So um, I'm just like a, a role model type figure. I'm not like a disciplinary figure or anything like that. Obviously there's rules and things in the house, but it's more just an example of showing these, these young people how sort of integrating into different living situations, just seeing how different people work and function. So the role is very much about just really engaging and being there when things happen and things like that. So And I yeah. guess just being an example of like an adult in their life that's not there to like tell them what to do or punish them or, yeah. you know, like just someone they can come to. Yeah. And like a lot of the time, because there's so many, like a lot of these kids have a lot of different workers and 
you know, when you're talking about government organisations and things like that, a lot of the communication between agencies and things like that breaks down and youth justice and things like that. So a lot of the time people say that I'm doing things and I don't because of lack of communication and things like that and the kids can sometimes fall, fall through the cracks. And sometimes they can view you as that figure too, but I guess the way the work that we try to do as volunteers and role models is break down that, that bridge and you do that by not, you know, sort of telling them what to do, but just saying, hey, we just live together and, you know, we're mates and we're just going to work at living together and, and, and support each other while we're living together. So, Yeah, do you mm. do much meditation stuff with those kids? Look, I don't really push it on them because I don't really want to do that, but I sometimes, I usually sit in my room when I do my evening sits, but sometimes I'll venture out into the garden and just so they can just say, oh, what's this guy doing? So if they ever, if one of the kids was ever interested in what I was doing, I'd definitely share it, but I wouldn't want to push it. Yeah. Like, I, I think yeah. it is one of those things as well. Like, if you were going to push it, you'd just be pushing them away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know you're passionate about making these practices more accessible to people of colour. Yeah. And I guess I share that, that passion because I am also a person of yeah. colour. But I'd like to get perhaps your insights on why you think this is important. Yeah, well, look, being, being some of colour myself, I think there's different issues. You know, there's a lot of issues that different people and different demographics face. And I think, you know, um, people of colour face... A lot of different issues in you know in the workplace and, and and culturally and things like that. Especially you know the African community, African Australian community is going through you know, a lot of things. So I think these practices more than ever are relevant. They can help people who may not necessarily not just not have the access, but not be in a space that's really comfortable to, to share things. You know I find usually when the space that I'm working in, it's a very much um, there's you know, sort of Caucasian sort of space that I'm in, which is which is fantastic, but I'm really passionate about branching out and going into spaces where people will not only have access to it, but also feel comfortable in that space. So um, I was, you know, looking to do some work in um, the Collingwood housing estate there. I was pretty much brought up in government housing myself, just down, just down here, around Rutgers Hill down there. But yeah, really passionate about doing that. And I'm also in the midst of organising a meditation collective through Arts Centre Melbourne. So we're going to be doing a meditation collective, which is like a monthly sit. We're going to be starting that on the 27th of October, which is the last Saturday. Um, and that's a POC friendly environment. Other people, you know, anyone's welcome to come down and no one's excluded. But we're looking to really work with meditation and also have a space to share out what's going on in our lives and see how mindfulness and meditation can tie into that to help us digest and move forward in a healthy way with the things we're facing in, you know, social and things like that at the moment. So that's going to be happening 27th of October. Um, it's going to be a multidisciplinary meditation collective. And we're just starting with, um, I'll be me and my girlfriend will be facilitating the first session and we'll be moving to hopefully branch it out a bit more so fantastic it's probably going to be after this episode's come out so is yeah. it going to be around the 27th every month or is there um, a website or something well, that people can look you up yeah if you go to my facebook probably the best way to contact me reality-based mindfulness on facebook and we're going to be starting there and then i guess given the amount of numbers that we get we'll, we'll determine how how we do it but if anyone's interested inbox me on facebook for more mm -hmm. info so yeah, yeah and we'll, we'll leave links to, in the show notes to everything are there any unique challenges you think you face in delivering these types of practices to people of colour? Well, one, one of the things is sometimes when, when there's not a lot of services offered in, in a particular space or a demographic, it takes time before people feel comfortable to go to a space. And I, and I feel that one of the challenges is getting the awareness out there because 
a lot of the times if people aren't familiar, it's very difficult to jump on. So I think the more we get people together, this is why we thought of it a collective too, to get, to get the word out there, the more we can start to build on that and, and make more programs that address sort of issues and we can have talks about different things that are going on and how we can tie it into meditation. Because I feel that it's, it's really needed, the, the, the ability to digest your experience and, and unhook from stress is hugely important for people of color. Hello, Ron here again, just interrupting with a short break. And I was wondering if you could do us a huge favor and give us a review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. It would be a great way for us to hear from you and it also spreads the word about the Flow Artist Podcast. And we really want everyone to know about our podcast. All right, that is enough from me. Let's get back to our conversation with Coco. I really love how you write your blog okay, and how you. accessible you make a lot of these concepts, which are pretty deep and multi-layered, but yeah. your language is really clear and I yeah. can see how anyone reading it would be able to kind of, it's like what you're saying, like how to meet people mm. where they're at and kind yeah. of give them this in into this meditation world that yeah. might be new to them yeah. and already give them some tools that would be like really helpful in just everyday life. Yeah, and like uh, that's where my passion, like for me, the insights that I feel that I've gained from this practice and even from different sort of spiritual traditions, I feel that they're universal. So I, I have no problem of conveying different information in a very clear, very clear way, especially when we're talking about insight meditation, which is, has its roots in a lot of different, a lot of people just consider mindfulness a Buddhist practice, but it's actually, you know, predating Buddhism in China and, you know, even in indigenous cultures in Australia practice this you know what I mean so my my passion is sort of distilling that in a way that's clear to understand that still acknowledges the cultural and spiritual traditions but is presented in a way that like this is something that's universal so let's let's get on board and practice this so that's why I feel mindfulness was a good way for me to express my I guess spiritual views but also in a way that helps people because they don't have to buy into a belief system they can practice this and see if it works for them. So. Yeah, especially if people are coming with their own religious background. Exactly. Like, it's not a conflict. Like, yeah. you can do both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, when I obviously, when I'm teaching and things like that, where there's no reference to any... Well, there's a, there's a reference, there's an acknowledgement that I always do at the start of my sessions from the wisdom traditions, but there's no, you know, any sort of dogmatic things or any sort of spiritual text that people have to read or anything like that, so... And yeah. so when you sit down to write an article for your blog, is it usually something that's just like spontaneous and you're like, oh, I've got to get this down, I've got to express this? Or is there yeah. a, a bit of a structure to it where it's like, okay, this month I'm going to talk about this, this week I'm going to talk about that? Yeah, well, like the first four or five blogs I did that, I started with, yeah, I'll talk about this, I'll talk about this, I'll talk about this. And then I just started reflecting on my experience. One of the blogs I was writing was, I don't know if it was this year, early this year, was one called The Want to Be in Pain. And there was one night where we, I, we had one, one kid who was being quite disruptive and we were, we were sitting and I was trying to unhook from my own stress because it, sometimes it can get a bit rough in, the, in these houses sometimes with you know, some kids you don't want to engage who are, or who are a bit aggressive. 
And I was there and I was trying to work on the breath and then I was thinking to myself, why, you know, I, I can't unhook right now. It's, you know, it's, it's, this is really, you know, I have to be at work in the morning. And then I realized it was part of me that just, it was just wanted to be irritated, that was still a bit pissed off, that was like, no, no, I'm not. So that sort of blog came from that of being able to see if, if you're choosing to be in, in anxiety and pain, if, even if you think that there's that's a, some resource in that that can address or um, meet the situation. So, um, yeah, thing is just life things you know just you know have an impact on the way i write i guess yeah and is it a little bit of a processing practice for you as well definitely yeah i'd never really thought how a blog and also i do my own little podcast on soundcloud oh what's your podcast called it's just reality-based mindfulness on soundcloud yeah so um it's more just me talking at the moment i haven't any guests yet i call it a podcast but it's just me talking about stuff so I feel that, um, yeah, it's, it's a way that helps me digest and articulate it. And I think if I can explain it clearly, you know, in the written form and also talking, it helps me communicate it to people a lot easier. You actually mentioned earlier, um, before we started recording, that you were doing a bit of stuff with video and mm. you're doing that alongside the, um, your podcast and a lot of writing. So I guess, you know, how important do you think it is to sort of spread your message in all these different formats yeah um look that's something i just chose to embrace you know Mm -hmm. social media and things like that i feel it started out as just like me sort of trying to check the boxes for my Mm -hmm. business Mm -hmm. really just like to be to be have more exposure and things like that but look i think that i really um enjoy it and i Mm -hmm. think um you know i do live instagram videos and things like that when i can and i think the more sort of open and vulnerable i get the more people can maybe more attracted to it and can relate to it. You know, mm-hmm. I know when I first started shooting my videos, it was more sitting on a whiteboard and I was talking about Mindfulness 101 and now, you know, I, I sort of post things of like, you know, things I'm finding about about myself in my journey, you know, mm-hmm. not coming from a place of a teacher, but just someone who's, you know, in the in the ride with everyone else. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I, I really do think that these days people really uh, sort of resonate with authenticity and, mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, realism and your mm. reality-based mindfulness mm. sort of reflects that. Yeah, mm. I guess when we start putting ourselves out there, we feel like we've got to be really professional about stuff, yeah. but actually that's not a very entertaining or engaging video to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, you know, I was speaking to a friend about this the other day and I was going through a rough time, just some stuff that was going on in my life, and I said, man, I'm super stressed at the moment and I feel like a bit of a fraud, you know, I should be, you know, like... I should be calm, cool, collected in all these situations. And a, a friend of mine, you know, he wasn't even you know, in, in the wellness industry. He said, man, like the, the stuff that you're teaching and a lot of these wellness people are teaching, these are like ongoing life skills and ongoing practices, mm-hmm. you know. So they're, they're some, that's something that's living in, and growing within you. But that's something that if you fall short of it, it's just about get, trying to work with it and accountability, you know, obviously having it, you know, ex- being experienced. But sometimes we hold ourselves to these high standards because like we're dealing in the in the well-being industry and that like that's always constant growth for any human being so yeah yeah and it's like you don't stop being a human being when you study this yeah, stuff like exactly. all of those issues yeah, and dramas have and to problems run a business, still exist you have to pay yeah. the bills and all that stuff too so um and i think as long as you can walk away with like you know the lesson out of things or, or reflect on yourself in a different way and even, you know, communicate to that to people. That's, you know, that's a way to move forward with it. And people can understand that too. 
Yeah, and I think as well it's really interesting to observe, like you did, this extra layer of pressure that we put upon ourselves. Like it's not just the stress of the situation that you're dealing with, but this feeling like you're somehow failing as a meditator because you're not handling it better. And it's like, that's not helpful. That's not helpful too, you know, and and even even it reflects in the practice too. You know, when I tell people too, you know, you bring a different person to each meditation session because you've lived more life. You may find this if you switch up your sessions, if you meditate when you wake up in the morning, and if you switch that up to meditating in the evening, you might find there'd be a different quality in your experience. It's because you live more life. It's because you're a different human being because A, B, C, and D, D has happened. So being able to be gentle on ourselves is really, really important. Do you have any strategies that you use for staying on track with your own practice? Because it seems like you've got a lot going on with your work life and volunteering. And I think checking in with my intention with things. For a long time, my practice has, has been, I've gone in bouts of being more stoic with my practice and not really being soft and gentle and caring to myself. So maybe that comes from my very sort of my martial arts background, a very pseudo Zen type element to it. But for me, it's it's about checking in with my intention. And even if that's like rereading a book or something like that, or just, you know, even if it's watching a, a video or switching up how I meditate and just keeping ways for me to be inspired with what I'm doing. So, yeah. And so do you have any like useful practices like before you see someone for a meditation session or maybe some things that you do for yourself after each session, just to kind of... Usually before, I like to obviously practice mindfulness myself and like I sometimes I when if I'm driving or something, I'll do a, a really cool little technique that I learnt from um, Russ Harris. I was in one of his workshops. He runs the acceptance and commitment therapy and just like a, a quick cycling of, you know, it's listening to the sounds and feeling my weight and going back to the breath and then going back to the sounds and just a quick cycle because a lot of the times if I ha- have a presentation or something, I get a little bit of nerves and there's a lot of going on. So that cycling of the different qualities of mindfulness, whether it's the sound or the weight of my feet on the car seat or my, the feeling of my shoulders, really helps with an overactive mind because you don't just have to pause the breaks and focus on the breath because you've still like, got things going on. So a gentle cycling through de-escalates me a little bit. Not if I'm, if I'm not that I'm anxious, but it just sort of grounds me a bit more. So I'll do a few sets of those. And that's such a real-world practice. Yeah. This is like, ideally, we would allow ourselves time when we arrive at a venue to yeah. present something to just settle, but often yeah. like, traffic gets in the way or yeah. other things get in the way. So if you can do it... Yeah. You know, like bringing that mindfulness into the busyness of everyday life. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. And even, you know, when I talk to people in the workplaces and things like that or anywhere, eyeline is a huge one too. I know when I get quite stressed, I walk a lot too. I pace and I notice my eyeline is very much on the ground. And that's when I get in my, that's when I know I'm ruminating a lot. So even things like if you notice you're getting a bit irritated and the breath isn't working, maybe just try some cycling through like what I said and just raise your eye line a bit higher and it just it just gets you out of your little, your, your pattern just, just a little bit. It might, you know, totally wash all your stress away, but it just gets you outside yourself. If you're outside, look, look at the trees and just raising your eye line has a different way of working with maybe your perception of things, gets you just to like get a bit of perspective and just look around and, and take a breath. So... Yeah, awesome. Mm, I noticed that you actually did the mindful walking classes Mm. to get active in Darabin community exercise program that me and Ron also both teach on. Oh, do you? Do you mindful walking or Darabin active? Oh, Darabin Darabin active. Yeah, I taught Mm. a family friendly yoga. Oh, cool. For the last, um, for the last term. Yeah, great. Yeah, some Pilates for ages. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's yeah. such a cool program. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And we did, I did two terms of mindful walking. 
So we got a nice little group there, just at Edwards Lake Park. And yeah, I usually, we started with, you know, some just some classic Zen style walking just for 20 minutes. And then we just walk around the lake and I'll sort of guide people to their experiences and things like that. But it was nice. It wasn't too crazy, like, because a lot of people go there for community too. So people want to go and have a chat and things like that. They don't want to be silent the whole time. So that's why I think at the start, we had a bit of a slower traditional style walk from tree to tree, you know. And then we sort of went around the lake and, and just sort of would drop into our experience and have a bit of a chat and sort of mesh it into, you know, just walking around the park type thing. Yeah, yeah. that's so nice. And it's like... That is such a unspoken benefit of the power of exercise and getting yeah. out and about like that time to connect with other people. Mm. And especially when it is like a free community program, there's all this scope to connect to every other person in your community who you might not encounter in yeah. everyday life. Like yeah. it's like babies are the yeah. youngest and then there's a lot of retired people as yeah. well and everyone in between. Yeah, yeah, I love the mindful walking stuff, you know. I was really, it was really nice. You get a, a little group together and things like that, so yeah. Is there yeah. much of a difference in the kind of content that you would teach in something like a community-based program to, you know, the language and what you would do in your corporate work? The language, it, it depends if, if I'm running a workshop or, or say, a class. Um, I also ran a couple of terms with the Newlands Community Centre and the East Coburg Community House too. The language I find, I haven't really had to adjust sort of the language too much. I find that in a corporate space and workplace space, you know, after you get over the slides and, and the, the boardroom thing, the questions that usually come up are usually the same. They're usually the same with if it's in the community or it's in corporate or things like that. But if I'm running something in a community sort of setting, I will allow more interaction and be a bit more softer with the session. It won't be as like bang this, bang that, bang that. And I might not try and hit as many as much content in the session so people can just experience what they're doing too. I found that I sort of guide my guided meditations now. Um, I'm sort of gearing towards not talking as much because a lot of people say, yeah, I was great, but you just kept talking. So I'm very big on not being afraid to have space and silence in a session now so people can actually like instruct someone on something and then give them the space to work with it and see if it works or not and then instruct them again. So. That has yeah. definitely been my area of feedback in all of my teacher training assessments and things yeah. like slow down, give them some space, don't try and get all of the information into yeah. the first five minutes. Yeah. And it can be a challenge like when you're teaching to mm. actually leave those silences. Like it feels yeah. like a long time for you, but yeah. it's not for the person mm. receiving. What's, is yeah. there anything that's been really helpful or just kind of being mindful to like give space? Yeah, just give space. And I think, you know, in, in a workshop setting, especially Especially if you, you know, if you get, if I get booked for a one-hour workshop, you want to tell them all this stuff, content in the inner guided meditation. You want to tell them, you know, if a thought comes up, you know, don't worry about it. Blah, blah, blah. But they have to have time to actually for that to happen for you to hit that point afterwards. So I found just having the confidence in like there, a lot of the times you may be feeling of may may have felt that you know I really need to like get all this information across that you properly, and they understand what's going on, and I'm, and I'm facilitating correctly. But I think just having confidence that they're, they're going off of what's going on in their mind. So they're trying to work with things and allowing them that space gives them the opportunity to attempt to work at it. 
and I sort of like just to drop little anchors in and, and then bring them back. And so do you kind of look at the group and kind of read how people are going? Like if you had to notice someone fidgeting, um, is that when you drop in a new thing or well, it's kind of more intuitive? Yeah, just intuitive because what I've found is it's, it's sometimes it's difficult to read people. You know, sometimes you might get someone who may be fidgeting a bit and like, oh, they're not going too well, you know, maybe need more guidance there. But then they'll, they'll come out and go, oh, look, that was really good. You know, I was a little bit irritable, but, you know, I wasn't that calm. And then you have someone who looks really blissful and that they could have something really traumatic show up. So I've learned to just sort of leave it um, and not try to judge or preempt what's going to happen. So Yeah, good strategy. Yeah, yeah. So we've kind of spoken a few times about all of the different things that you do yeah. and the things that you do online. Yeah. Is it a challenge to manage your time so that all of this is sustainable or is that also something that's pretty intuitive and... Yeah, it's always a bit, bit of time management to, to, you know, to getting all this stuff done. I enjoy doing it, so it's not too much I have to cram, cram it all in. At this stage, I'm still sort of building my, my business up, so I don't have people working under me or anything like that, so it's, it's, it can happen a bit more organically too. But yeah, I do find that sometimes when you're producing a lot of content too, you've got to find a way to have something new, but not just say things just because you're saying them, you know. So sometimes I may do videos again and speak about something in a different way because I don't just want to put out information just just because so yeah yeah just because people say that it's good to do something every day or yeah. every week if you're not feeling it that day yeah. there's not that much to be gained by making yourself yeah put something out there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I guess this takes us back a little bit but you do these workshops on communication and mm. it seems very much what you do is you know all these different avenues of communication through social media through your mm. blog is communication something that you always had an interest in or um, is it something that just developed as a consequence of you wanting to teach and bring your message to more people? I think, yeah, that sort of happened, um, what do you mean by like the social media and, and the blog? Well, just communication or, in general, being an effective communicator. Oh, okay, yeah, look, I think that that came as a byproduct of run, wanting to get, talk about what I'm passionate about mm -hmm. but after sort of reflecting on my my past ex experiences with different things I used to do like I used to be into like forming music and things like that so I think that all had an impact on how I communicate with people like whether it's playing music or it's you know running a workshop that I think I really enjoy it I really enjoy being able to communicate clearly and bring information forth that can really connect with people so mm. I think that answered the question I'll let you yeah sure. no yeah. no that's great and yeah. so have you always been pretty confident about speaking in front of a group or is that something that you've had to yeah. work on? Yeah, I had to work on that. I've had to work on that. I was fortunate enough to be one of the facilitators for Mindfulness Works Australia. So um, I've been running courses with them since last year. So through through that experience, I've, I've had like a, a whole lot of practice, so, so to speak, with, with facilitating groups. I've sort of learned to trust in my ability a bit. Definitely learned if I don't know something, you know, obviously the... Self-study is something I hold in high regard for myself just with different studies and things on mindfulness too. But I feel that I'm learning just to trust my own experience too. And if I don't know something, just be, be open about it. I think I've learned too. So, yeah. And also that's how a conversation starts because yeah. that's how you can open that question up and yeah. turn it into a discussion rather than... Yeah, and that's what I, I tend to do uh, when I teach on acceptance. You know, when I teach the, on acceptance, I used to go in and like, all right, this is what acceptance is and da 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 and, but I found that the, usually the demographic I'm talking to are sort of quite older than me. So maybe anywhere from, you know, mid-40s up until early 70s I've had in courses. 
and it gets to the point where, you know, these people have gone through, you know, I've had a few few widows, recently widows in these sessions, and it's like, well, acceptance is such a universal quality in people, the ability to accept or the ability to not be able to accept something, that it's, we just started opening it up as a conversation. You can't really teach someone how to accept something. But I found that opening it up and sort of trying to tie it into mindfulness, meaning that this is how potentially this could help us, but let's talk about acceptance. Let's talk about what, what you've accepted, what you haven't accepted. And the feedback you get, I've learned, I've learned so many lessons in those sort of sessions. And I guess that's great as well. If you're lacking in confidence in yourself as a presenter and you open it up to the group, suddenly it's not just all about you. Yeah. It's all about everyone. And yeah. that takes the pressure off somewhat. Like it's not yeah. up to you to get people to this state. It's more just a journey of like everyone exploring what it means to yeah. them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it shows a sign of confidence too because sometimes, you know, you can really just give information and talk, 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 talk. But when the questions come up, you know, that's when it shows if you can address those questions or be willing to have that conversation. I think it shows a bit of confidence too, you know what I mean? So, yeah. I think the questions are great as well because everyone else there who hears the question who maybe were too shy to ask yeah. or were thinking it was just them that was feeling that yeah, way. Exactly. like yeah. I'm also curious when you sort of open it up for discussion. I've tried that sometimes in my classes and I find that sometimes after a meditation session people are sort of a bit or a bit maybe zonked out or yeah. bit, and, and and then sometimes the most you'll get from them is like, Yeah, yeah, it was good. <laughs> yeah. So how do you open that up? Yeah, I used I sort of yeah, I used to do that after like a sit all right, talk to the person beside you and sometimes, you know, when I've been in courses and that's happened, like, oh I'm really just not like not yeah. to talk right now, I just yeah. go in meditation. Yeah. So I sort of moved away from that. But usually when there's conversation, I'm usually running a course or a right. workshop. So a lot of it is very interactive from the get go and it's a lot of like there's a lot of content being discussed so there's open there's room for that that conversation but if it's like i find that maybe after a long sit i find if it's if it's a class setting i might just sort of open it up to the group does anyone want to share anything and not popcorn it so to speak and not go like round robin type thing oh no you don't want to go around the circle with that pressure on people yeah yeah exactly yeah well, I guess maybe we should ask you as well. Is yeah. there anything else that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I just wanted to share that we're looking to make that space, that safe space for people of colour and, mm-hmm. and other people welcome to come down on, again, the 27th of October um, at the Arts Centre. So jump on to my Facebook inbox if you're interested, anyone out there is interested, and there'll be more information coming up on that, yeah. Excellent. So I guess my final question is, uh, if you could distill all your teaching, everything you've learned, everything oh, wow. you like to share down to one core essence, oh. what do you think that would be? We saved the simple question for last. Yeah, simple question <laughs> for last. Look, I, I'll answer that from where I'm at at this point because that will always change. I would say allow this moment to be as it is. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much yeah. for talking with us today. Yeah, thank it's you guys for having me. Yeah. Yeah. And that was our conversation with Coco. He's a really articulate and thoughtful guy and I think he's doing some wonderful things. I'm hoping to make it along to one of his meditation collective events and I'll share a link in the show notes for that so get along to that one. Now just so you know we're taking a short break from the podcast. We're heading to New Zealand for a family visit so our next episode will come out in four weeks. I know it sounds like a really long time but I am sure you'll be fine. We have about 38 other episodes you can listen to, so why not go to podcast.flowartist.com slash episodes and check out our back catalogue. 
Alright, our next episode is an interview with Sydney-based yoga and Pilates teacher Claire Canine. She specialises in chair yoga, so we were really excited to speak with her. Now, we'll have some special news about something we'll be working on with Claire early next year, so look out for that in four weeks' time. Alright, I hope the rest of your day is just wonderful. The theme song you're listening to right now is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul and used with permission. Get his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com. Thanks so much for listening. Aroha nui. Big, big love.